The following podcast is brought to you by the Santa Monica College Associates, the SMC Associates, enhancing student excellence. Hi, everybody. Welcome. Thank you very much for coming today. My name is Jennifer Merlick, and I'm chair of the Physical Science Department here at SMC, and it's my pleasure to introduce our speaker today. Before I do that, I also want to thank the Santa Monica College Associates for sponsoring this seminar series, which is now in year 12, I believe. Yeah. So, yes. <laughs> and also more personally, Judy Naveau, who's who handles a myriad of logistics for making this series run really smoothly every year. So thank you, Judy. Um, our speaker today is Professor Paul Weiss. Dr. Weiss received his bachelor's and master's degrees in chemistry from MIT and his PhD also in chemistry from uh, UC Berkeley. He was a postdoctoral member of the technical staff at Bell Laboratories and a visiting scientist at IBM Almaden Research Center before beginning his academic career as a distinguished professor of chemistry and physics at the Pennsylvania State University. In 2009, he moved to UCLA, where he's now the director of the CNSI, which is the California Nanosystems Institute. And he's a professor of chemistry and biochemistry, and he is the Fred Cavley Chair in Nanosystem Sciences. His interdisciplinary research group, and I have to say I think this is the most interdisciplinary <laughs> research group I've encountered in my career, um, includes chemists, physicists, biologists, material scientists, electrical and mechanical engineers, and computer scientists. Their work focuses on the atomic scale chemical, physical, optical, mechanical, and electronic properties of surfaces and supramolecular assemblies. Professor Weiss has published over 200 papers and patents and has given over 400 invited and plenary lectures, and one more today. <laughs> uh, please join me in welcoming him here today. Thanks very much for the invitation. And, uh, and thank you, uh, Jennifer and Judy, for arranging the, the visit. This is really a talk designed for discussion, so please interrupt at any time. And uh, otherwise, I'll show the several thousand slides. I think we have till 5 p.m. Is that the? <laughs> okay. Oh. Uh, what I thought I would do is give you a feeling for the world that we explore and how we look at it. So in my group, we have uh, three big uh, projects at the moment. One is to see if we can get molecules to work together. Uh, so we're best known for, and you'll see a couple of slides on this, is seeing single molecule function. We work on synthetic molecules in those studies rather than biological molecules. Our inspiration comes from biology, biomolecular motors, and so forth. But we would like to know where every atom is. And we want to be able to go all the way from quantum mechanics to mechanical engineering in experiment theory and simulation. So we work with synthetic chemists. We design molecules with them. They make the molecules. We don't do very much synthesis in our lab. Uh, we do the assembly and measurements. We work with a number of theory groups around the world. And then we try and figure out what the key components of function are, of the mechanisms, and now what happens when we put the molecules together. And uh, usually what happens is they interfere with each other. But I'll show you at least the first example of where uh, they start to work together at least. Okay. Uh, second thing that we try to do is to develop good figures of merit for important function, like uh, taking uh, light and turning it into electrical energy. 
and we'll talk a little bit about that as we go along. I'll show you some new experiments there, and I was delighted to find out this morning that our collaborator from Seattle is going to be here on Thursday lecturing at uh, UCLA. So we'll get to uh, see him and uh, compare notes and uh, conspire further. Then the third thing that we're trying to do is take the ideas that we've learned from these synthetic systems and apply them to biology. So we've learned from the synthetic systems that small variations in the uh, molecular structures and the assemblies and the environment have important consequences in terms of function. And we've learned to separate out that heterogeneity. In fact, the odds on favorite for the Nobel Prize tomorrow is one of the first people to look at uh, single molecules uh, spectroscopically. He's a professor at Stanford. He used to be my colleague at IBM when I was there. And my son works in his lab. So we'll see. <laughs> in any case, uh, from these synthetic systems, we've learned that's important. But the way we get biological structures to date keeps us from understanding those variations. So you've seen x-ray crystal structures. Diffraction is an averaging technique. We'll talk a little bit about that and why we don't like it and why we'd like to develop new techniques that allow us to look at individual biomolecules and assemblies and then compare them in terms of their structure and function and get the kind of statistics we're used to from crystallography or other measurements of ensembles of molecules, but get down to single ones, put those distributions together to pull out the key functions. And you'll at least see where we're going if I don't have any kind of punchlines there yet. Okay. And so hopefully over the next few years, you'll see some advances in that area. And I hope those will be led uh, by CNSI. That's one of the main focuses of our institute. OK, so I sort of went through all this. I should probably start with a, speaking of my children, I should probably start with a joke. Uh, so my uh, kids think this applies to me, but I like to think that it applies to our science. So it goes like this. Knock, knock. <laughs> control freak. Now you say control freak who? <laughs> it's always a bimodal distribution of laughs that come back on that one. <laughs> okay, so uh, what we try and do is control the placement and uh, function of molecules at all scales at the same time, and you'll see that as we go. So from sub-nanometer out to centimeter. And uh, we've learned to place molecules and develop strategies to do that well beyond what anybody can do with lithography, the technique used to you know, uh, make chips in the semiconductor industry for your computers and phones and so forth. I should tell you a little bit about CNSI, maybe. Uh, we have 125 faculty, which is about 2% of UCLA's faculty, from 30 departments. And uh, basically, people are self-selected to be curious. We like to hear about each other's problems. It's about a third science, a third engineering, a third medicine. And we have an infinite number of refractory problems that we try to address. So someone will come in, for instance, in medicine and say, you know, boy, if I could do this, it would revolutionize my field. An example is in chronic pain, not very much has happened in the last decade. We're taking a crack at it with people who do measurements in the brain, with people from entertainment who have, uh, you know, we're trying to, uh, there's some evidence that distraction while, you're, while burn victims are being treated uh, is important for them to be able to tolerate those. We're trying to make those better by understanding what's happening in the brain at the time of uh, treatment, working with membrane receptor people, my group in patterning, uh, PET scan uh, people, small molecule drug discovery, high throughput screening, and so forth. So bringing together interesting teams 
who haven't looked at these problems before and seeing if we can come up with a new idea. Yeah. Okay. And it's fun to visit. You should come over. Uh, there are open houses uh, quite regularly, and if you would like to see it at any other time, you know, please uh, come down the street and visit us. Okay, so the scales, uh, we know about uh, red blood cells, right, a few microns, DNA a couple nanometers apart, uh, across, and so what we want to do is work from here all the way up to a couple of floors up the next building over, all at the same time, back to the knock-knock joke. Okay. The way people uh, do lithography now, make semiconductor structures, is, take, is to take a big piece of crystalline silicon, slice it up into wafers, and then carve it in what's essentially a direct descendant of stone and wood carving that people have been doing for centuries. And then they do a little bit of chemistry to turn parts of it into metal, parts of it into insulators to separate devices, and parts of it into doped semiconductor volumes where the action takes place. And so there are two directions to go from there. We can uh, position atoms individually. I was actually the first one to do this back when I was at IBM. The last four days I worked there in 1989 because I'd given up on the other experiments I was trying to do. And so uh, this is a physics experiment. It's no way to make anything. So if we want to make a precise structure and study its properties, we can do that. We do that in our laboratory sometimes. But uh, what I'll talk about more is using the interactions between molecules to get them to form the structures that we want and to work out the strategies that will make that happen. And so what we're able to do is add to the lithographies that are used in the semiconductor industry, others that are used um, more in a research sense, to that, we'll add the chemical dimension in which we'll control the exposed chemical functionality that then controls the chemical, physical, and biological interactions with the outside world. Okay, and you'll see some of that. Okay. So uh, here are the kind of punchlines of what we do. The way we're going to place molecules is to realize that some of the thinking... Uh, that was around at the time we entered this field almost 20 years ago now was wrong, and we'll talk about that, and that these structures never reach equilibrium, and so our, our strategies involve controlling access of molecules from solution or vapor or contact, we'll talk about all of those, to the substrate that they can then attach. So if you seal up most of the surface and only let the molecules go in a few places, it turns out you can separate them at scales that lithography could never do. And we'll get into why we're doing that and why I'm trying to keep my wife, who's a neuroscientist, happy uh, by doing that as we uh, go along. And that involves patterning at simultaneously at many scales. We won't really talk too much about these uh, mo cage molecules that we're working on that have simpler structures and symmetry that make it easier now for us to do the patterning, but it took us 15 years to think about uh, much of our inspiration in what we're doing comes from the biotechnology, both in the Institute and in our own lab, comes from the biotechnology revolution, where new tools enabled new science, new questions, and so forth. Uh, and informatics is a big part of that. Remember I said I want lots and lots of single molecule or single assembly measurements, and then I want to pick them apart. That ends up being an informatics problem comparable to what... Uh, People have to deal with in bioinformatics, and we use not only some of the same math, but some of the same mathematicians. So actually, I have math uh, mathematicians in my group now, uh, collaboratively with some of the uh, leading people in uh, math and applied math at uh, UCLA. 
but that was yesterday's talk when the Keck Foundation visited to... Yeah, anyway. Okay, we have some rules in the laboratory. If you've read anything about nanoscience, you've seen a lot of cartoons. And the great majority of those cartoons are wrong. And they're wrong for interesting and important reasons. And so we have a rule in the laboratory that if you draw a cartoon at a group meeting or in some other discussion, you have to design an experiment that'll test that cartoon against reality. And if you try and make that assembly, you have to do that experiment or an equivalent, and we would like this rule globally applied. So I'm editor of a journal in nanoscience, and we try and get people to follow that rule too, and I've put that in at least three editorials now in the last uh, five years. We talked a little bit about how we use defects, and we talked a little bit about how we want to do many, many, typically thousands or tens of thousands of measurements of function, dynamics, spectra, whatever, whatever property we're trying to measure at the same time that we're measuring the environment of the individual molecule or assembly, and uh, you'll see how we do that. A lot of what we do is, is uh, develop new tools that'll enable these experiments, but we don't usually talk about those. So, uh, and that's probably over half of the time that we spend in the lab. The advantage is, in our lab, we can do things nobody else can. The disadvantage is there's no manual, there's no phone number to call, and there's no warranty. So our students know how to take everything apart and put it back together, develop something new. Right? Moving atoms around was basically rewriting the software for the microscope overnight, and then in the morning going in and starting to poke and slide atoms. Okay? And now we do that with things like photoconductivity or uh, trying to measure where the multiple bonds in a molecule are to identify uh, parts of proteins. Okay, so... Uh, there are these systems called self-assembly monolayers, which I'm guessing not so many people have heard of. But they have the following properties. Uh, you can take a substrate that's a metal, a semiconductor, an insulator, a nanoparticle, glass, superconductor, porous material. And according to what the exposed chemistry is, you can find molecules that will bind to that surface. Okay. So the one that people have studied the most is a gold surface, and it turns out sulfur loves gold. So if you start with molecules that contain sulfur, you can take the gold samples and dip them in a solution, expose them to a vapor, or literally take a rubber stamp with the sulfur-containing molecules and apply it to the substrate and put those on in a one-molecule-thick layer that's chemically bound. And the sulfur end of the molecule will stick to the surface, and whatever's on the other side will be exposed to the outside world. So this is a little bit like waxing your car, right? If before you wax the car, right, the water kind of lays flat on it. If you wax it, you expose a hydrophobic surface, and the water beads up. So you can do that with a one nanometer thick layer, one molecule thick layer. And the lore... Question? Uh, chemical vapor deposition is usually uh, thought of for uh, three-dimensional materials. You can deposit, uh, these are uh, volatile compounds, so you can deposit them from vapor, and it works that way. But you usually call this a self-assembly or self-assembled monolayers. Yeah. And these particular ones have the nice property that they order. And we'll show you the structures of those in just a second. And the lore had been for 20 plus years, that if you form these layers and you figured out a way to grab them mechanically 
and rip them off the surface, that the sulfur-gold bond was stronger than gold-gold bonds, and you would break the top layer of gold atoms off before you would break the sulfur-gold bonds. And I was always curious about that, and actually, we just published a paper last month where we figured out how to do that. It wasn't the intention. It just turned out that was the result. We were able to show that that was, in fact, true. So, Okay. So uh, the, uh, one of the people who developed uh, these is uh, Dave Alara. He was my uh, colleague at Bell Laboratories, then my colleague at Penn State. You can see he's, he was working on these since before color photography uh, was invented. The uh, scanning tunneling microscope uh, that was uh, invented and enabled a resolution a thousand times better than we need to image individual atoms. Not that we find anything smaller, that's just what we get out of these microscopes when we build them, and we do build them ourselves. I had a student built three on a Sunday afternoon, and all of them got atomic resolution. And uh, they're about this big, fun to see. Uh, they're often in a you know, room size instrument just because of vacuum and other analytical considerations. Uh, but those were invented by Heine Rohr uh, back in 1981 uh, with uh, Gert Binnig, who I don't have a picture of drinking, uh, but they won the Nobel Prize five years later. So if you're a semi-retired Nobel laureate, you can have a beer at 7.30 in the morning at a hot springs in Japan where we were staying uh, as part of a center effort. Yeah. I guess this is being taped. Never mind. Okay, and this is uh, <laughs> Christoph Gerber who uh, helped invent both the scanning tunneling microscope and the atomic force microscope and is now at University of Basel. This was on a private train in Switzerland. I think he's pouring scotch for everybody on the train. Okay, so the idea at that he's a wonderful guy comes and visits uh, quite frequently here. Yeah. In fact, he always goes to uh, Giorgio's in Santa Monica, and you can ask why later, but it has to do with Nicole Kidman being there the first time. He <laughs> I think he's always hoping for an encore. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so uh, when we started working in this field, it was thought that the molecules went down randomly, irreversibly, and were immobile on the surface. And so we had just developed this microwave frequency microscope that we thought would allow us to differentiate between all of those molecules. And since they were randomly on the surface, we could choose the ratio that we deposited and then tell the molecules apart from the signals that we got. And it turned out we didn't need that special microscope that just the plain vanilla scanning tunneling microscope allowed us to differentiate between two different end groups on the molecules. And those three ideas I mentioned, all three were wrong. The molecules did move on the surface. They phase separated according to what the interactions between the tail groups were. And we could rank those interactions by looking at the structures that we found on the surfaces. And then all the motion was determined by the defects. That's where we saw the molecules moving around and reorganizing. And we realized uh, from further experiments that these films never reached equilibrium. So that's important for us because, number one, we can control the dynamics by controlling the defects. But we also want to make sure, if we make a nanostructure, that it doesn't dissolve. Right? It's no good if you pattern and then the pattern's gone. We'll talk a little bit about that as we go, too. Okay, so advanced several years. We got the microscope better. We, we, started to, we and others started to use slightly shorter molecules where we could resolve every single one of them in the lattice. So that's what you're seeing here is, is uh, that each one of these features is one molecule. There was a fight for a long time about what it is uh, you're measuring in the microscope that 
gives you one of these dots, basically, for each molecule. But it turns out, under most circumstances, you're measuring the tops of the molecules. And so, uh, since defects are going to be so important, let me introduce them as the key actors in the next part of the talk. So if we have a one atom high step edge, which this is, then since these molecules tilt over 30 degrees to maximize the interactions between the chains, it turns out there's no good way to organize them to maximize that overlap across a step. There's just some mismatch in sizes. And so if you allow the molecules to move, or you allow the substrate atoms to move, and both do, or a complex, which is what usually moves, of the two, then you accumulate empty space at the step edges. And if we're trying to isolate single molecules, big for us, right, a few nanometer, holes are bad. And so we have to take special precautions to fill in those holes. Okay. Uh, it turns out when we put the molecules down, we remove some of the top layer of atoms. Sort of complicated story, but we understand it. Uh, that makes the, these one atom deep holes in the substrate functionally equivalent to a step edge, so I color them together. Okay? Then, if we have uh, two different domains, either where the molecules are tilted in different directions, or there's an offset of how they're attached to the surface, we get these stripes where there's some small axis of the substrate, and those are our favorite kind of defects. Okay? Then a third kind is if we don't fill in the monolayer, then if we look in the microscope, we see molecules moving around. It looks noisy. We have another laboratory rule. There's no such thing as noise, only data. Okay? Sometimes very useful. So how we'll do thermometry you know, of a one atom uh, interacting with one, uh, you know, the end of a, a tip that ends in an atom. We'll do that kind of thermometry there by looking at uh, noise as a function of frequency. We can tell if we're heating up the system or not. Usually not, it turns out. Okay. So if you uh, have, oh, we have another experiment here to show that the chains can relax, and we're looking at the sides of the chains instead of the ends. And so if you want to isolate single molecules again, you don't want these kind of defects, and you want to fill in uh, those as well. And we know how to process the film so as to control the uh, type. We can make these essentially uh, straight and long and dominant in terms of the defects on the surface. And we're going to do that. Okay. So I don't know how, you, how many of you remember Robert Palmer. Very good, yeah. It's sort of Love Actually, right? There's a takeoff on that with the uh, Love is All Around Us song. Sort of same idea. So he uh, had this fantastic chorus, beautiful matrix, and then what do you do? Right, you put the the you put yourself right in the middle of that, and that's that was the lead singer. Anyway, <laughs> look up Robert Palmer and Irresistible, and you'll see what I mean. <laughs> okay, so now let me compress about a decade worth of uh, experiments into one slide, so that we can move on to more interesting things. Remember, I said we're going to look at the function of single molecules. These particular molecules have been discovered to be electronic switches, two nanometers long, half a nanometer wide. When you put 10,000 of them together between electrodes in a sealed volume where you couldn't look inside. And so our collaborators had done that, an EE professor at Yale and a synthetic chemist then at South Carolina, now at Rice University, where I went a week and a half ago. And we had a few questions. Number one, could single molecules switch? And the answer was yes. 
We use this trick of isolating the molecules at the domain boundaries and then studying them with a scanning tunneling microscope. We asked, how do they switch? What was the mechanism? And it turned out five different theory groups had proposed six different mechanisms. One of them couldn't make up their mind about how the switches worked. And so, for example, one group said that this nitro group, that's a little bit hard to see from here, but this nitro group, if it rotated 90 degrees, that would change the extent of the electrons in the molecule, changing the overlap of the substrate, and thereby changing the conductance of the molecule. So what we did is we deleted that nitro group. Right? We got our synthetic collaborators to make the same molecule without the nitro group, and we showed the molecule still switched. We couldn't drive it from one state to another, but we could see it switching randomly back and forth, and so we could cross out that mechanism. And another group said that relative ring rotation would be like having cross polarizers, and that would reduce the conductance of electrons through the molecules. And so what we did is we, we understood uh, from our intuition that probably wasn't correct because you get free rotation about a triple bond like this at about 30 or 40 Kelvin, and we can do room temperature experiments to show these work. But to be fair, we made the same molecules with the rings fused together so that they couldn't rotate, and those still switched. And so to our chagrin, we crossed off all six mechanisms through experiments. And so we had to come up with our own explanation. And uh, through some luck, we discovered that the tighter the matrix, the less random switching we saw and concluded the motion must be important in some way and ultimately uh, figured out that if the molecules tilt 30 degrees for the chemists, uh, that changes the hybridization of the buried bond and that changes the conductance. So very much like a semiconductor device, the contact is everything. Okay? And so that led to a series of experiments. Oh, it also led to a love affair. Why don't we talk about that for just a moment? So I had uh, Zach Donhauser in the group. Zach is now a, a professor at uh, Vassar College in uh, Poughkeepsie. Uh, excellent uh, liberal arts, formerly uh, uh, women's school. And he was the one who discovered that motion was important. And so what he did was he found the same molecules in a tight matrix and a loose matrix and showed that the exact same molecules switched back and forth more quickly in a loose matrix. Then he figured out how to add molecules in the matrix to tighten it up and saw less random switching. And so he, at the time, was teasing Penelope Lewis in my group, especially about how smart he was. And so her, her idea was, well, it took him three steps. In one step, she'll do the same thing. And so what she did is she took a matrix molecule that had hydrogen bonding and was thus stiffer, and one step slowed down the stochastic switching, they later married. And they're very competitive, so I would recommend against ever playing board games against them, and especially shooting skeet, because guns and, yeah. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> so she was later a professor at Skidmore, but then decided uh, to go more uh, research direction, and then became managing editor of our journal, and has now moved up I think three times in American Chemical Society. So you might see her name as head of it someday soon. Yeah. Okay. And the, oh, the uh, special matrix molecules were made by Jim Hutchison at University of Oregon, who runs the Green Chemistry Center there. You have the right shirts already on for that. Thing. So three questions came from these experiments. Oh, sorry. One more incredibly smart thing Penelope did, and just left Zach in the dust. Uh, that was, we, she figured out that uh, we could make these molecules switch by applying an electric field. That the dipole of the molecules were interacting 
with the field we applied between our microscope tip and our substrate. Okay? And so molecules that have sufficient dipoles, so these molecules, the positive end is out, so you apply a negative bias to the tip that makes them upright, and that's the on state. Okay? And you apply a positive bias that tilts them over. So what did she do? She went and rewired the molecules by designing them such that the dipole was inverted, as if there were still normal wall switches in rooms, and you went and rewired them so up is off and down is on. And so when she did that for a whole series of molecules, she showed that the polarity inverted of the switch. She came up with an idea and then tested it experimentally. Very nice. So three questions came from those experiments. What are the absolute structures? How fast can they switch? And what's the conductance of that buried bond? And so let me show you how we approach those problems experimentally. Okay. So back when I was at IBM, we had this idea. We wanted to be able to measure the tilt of molecules with the microscope. We had all these crazy ideas, and we tried all of them, and none of them worked. We'd sit over coffee if it was during the day or something else if it was later, and come up with one scheme after another, all failed. And then uh, at the same time, we were, we were trying to decode what it is we measure with a microscope in our normal topographic measurement, where the tip scans over the surface and so forth. And uh, so here, what we did is we took two different chain, pairs of different uh, chain lengths and put one dilute and the other on the surface. They form the same structure. And we showed that under most conditions, and we know how to get these conditions deterministically, what we're measuring with the, with the conventional topographic measurement with a microscope is the tops of the molecules. And we can see that uh, from this ultra-stable microscope uh, that we uh, built and uh, worked on here in that there's an offset of the peaks for the shorter chains. Okay. Then it turns out, at the same time, we can measure the largest buried dipole of the molecule, which in this case is the sulfur-gold bond. Right? Sulfur is pretty electronegative, remember, right side of the periodic table. And so the largest buried dipole is the sulfur-gold bond. We can measure that lattice at the same time by moving the tip in and out just a little bit, like a hundredth of an angstrom, and measuring the derivative of current with respect to that separation and mapping that. And so since all of them have the same attachment, we see one lattice for the bottoms of the molecules. Okay. Uh, yeah. So then the problem is, how do you associate which bottom goes with which top? And the trick is to use the domain boundaries where they change direction. And so in something like 30 pages of supplementary material in that paper, you can see how we did that. Okay. And there's a funny story that goes with this that I don't want to tell with the mic on involving the bottoms of the presidents of Caltech, MIT, and the chancellor of Santa Barbara. But after we demic, I'll be happy to tell you that story. <laughs> they still remember it, though. <laughs> and it's from the first time I showed this slide. Yeah. In any case, uh, these, uh, these guys uh, came, came to the group and, and came up with this uh, fantastic experiment to measure absolute structures. So 20 years later, we figured out how to measure tilt. In our group, that's not uncommon, that it takes uh, you know, 10 or more years to make an experiment work. But we learn things along the way. OK, what about how fast they can go back and forth? So if I'm right that this is a tilt, that's a frustrated rotation. That should be up on the scale of 10 to the 10 hertz. 
Well, STM is really slow. We're mechanically scanning. Okay, so it takes me usually a few seconds to a few minutes to record an image. The fastest microscopes can go at about video rate. That's nothing near the gigahertz that we're going to need. And so remember, as we're recording, right, we're getting a lot of useless information because we're measuring the matrix over and over and over. And so what we can do, so this is two days recording over the same area in a microscope we stabilized to be able to sit there measuring about 50 molecules. And remember I said we needed a few thousand measurements or tens of thousands to get the data. And we have this apparent height as a proxy for how conducting a molecule is. So the more conductive it is, the more protruding it'll appear. And so that's the on state and that's the off state. So that gives us this frequency range 1 hertz to 10 to the minus 5 hertz. But we're interested in 10 to the 10 hertz. Okay. So what if we just focus in on a particularly active molecule? Sorry, sat here. you get stuck with all the demos. I'll come to you in a second. So we find one very active molecule that's switching back and forth. And if we don't record an entire image, we're just limited by how fast our microscope can respond in apparent height. And that's millisecond, a millisecond, so a kilohertz. And in a few seconds, we get comparable statistics. Okay? And we're really limited by the motion of the tip. So if we throw that away and we just sit, we'll use you for all your active too. So if we just sit here and measure current fluctuations, we get out to how fast our current amplifier can respond, which is about a megahertz, 10 to the 6 hertz. So that lets us cover 11 orders of magnitude, but we're still three or four short. So how do you go the distance? And the answer is uh, try frequency-based measurement. So what we want to be able to do is modulate the bias and measure the molecules responding to the field when we're at low enough frequencies or when they can't anymore at higher frequencies. So material scientists would say that's the dielectric response of a single molecule. Okay? It turns out it's really hard to get enough electric field in, get enough amplitude in to drive the molecules back and forth, and we're still working on that. What we can do is we can apply just a very small bias and look at the response of the electrons. When we do that, we're measuring something called polarizability, which I'm guessing some of you've heard of in PCHEM. Getting there? No one's going to admit it? Okay, a few. Very good, thank you. Appreciate it. So uh, what polarizability lets you do is figure out the dispersion forces. Things like Van der Waals forces come from the induced dipoles that we're going to measure here directly. Now, it's a little bit of a ruse in that we're not measuring single molecules. When I was a grad student, I calculated those polarizabilities to measure attractive forces between an alkali. I made like a picogram, a table salt, in five years with seven lasers. I mean, the point wasn't synthesis, but still. Uh, but uh, in order to, to understand my, uh, my data, I needed to calculate these polarizabilities. I never thought it would come back to that. But that was in the gas phase. Here, the molecules are sitting on the surface on 10 to the 22 atoms, and they're surrounded by other molecules. And so we have to include that part in understanding polarizability, and that turns out to be useful, as I'll show you here. So if you change the chain length, you get a linear variation in polarizability. These are kind of calibration studies. If you add some pi electrons, those are more polarizable. And with these two different tilt angles of the same molecule, you get a contrast inversion, as was predicted. 
And then if you add lots of pi electrons, take a completely conjugated system, alternating multiple and single bonds, you get much higher polarizability for those molecules. And all as uh, Mark Ratner and his uh, postdoc, Sina Yagane, had predicted. Then the interesting part. Let's look at the same molecules in the on and the off state. When we do that, the exact same molecule, the polarizability measured for that molecule varies by factor of two. What that tells us in the on state, the electrons that can come from the substrate through that buried bond are equal in their polarizability to the entire contribution from the molecule's electrons alone. Okay? So we now have a way to measure how open that valve is of the buried bond. And in these experiments, we're going to come back to them in a little while, the things we learned we're sensitive to are multiple bonds, heteroatoms, things other than you know, carbon, hydrogen, uh, then, uh, then uh, the molecule substrate contact, right, according to how conducting it is, and molecule-molecule contact. And so when we look at some biomolecules late in the talk, you'll see how we use this. Now, artistic interlude. So how many of you go to the Getty? Just up the street? Yeah? So you know they have 20 scientists there who can just grab anything off the wall, put it under their arm, and come over to the Institute to measure it. And I don't know if you remember the old Gary Larson cartoon about somebody finding a Rembrandt over a Da Vinci. They didn't do that, but they found a Rembrandt over a Rembrandt, tilted sideways by doing x-ray measurements of one of their paintings. And so uh, these measurements were done by Karen uh, Trentelman there, who looks at illuminated manuscripts. And illuminated manuscripts are exciting for them to study because you don't do any restoration on them. You don't cover them. You don't seal them with anything because the parchment has to be able to breathe over time. And they have just a spectacular collection. If there's some exhibit, you should go see it. And they, she can carry this one out. And uh, so she was intrigued by this particular uh, frame from one done for the uh, French king, uh, done in 1500 with King David looking at Bathsheba, and he noticed the water's dirty, which is sort of weird, right? And then these trees have alternating contrast, and she went in and did elemental analysis. How many have taken analytical chemistry? Yes, yeah, so it was like an unknown experiment, right? But with a manuscript 600 years old. And so when she did that, she first looked in the visible spectrum and showed this uh, contrast, showed a contrast inversion, which is my flimsy excuse for this interlude, uh, that when she looked in the infrared, the contrast inverted. And so when she did an elemental analysis, she found that this was uh, due to bismuth in the, in the tints, and it's the first known use of bismuth just a few years after the discovery of the element. And she was able to trace back through the training of Bordeschamps, who uh, did this, back to uh, the school where he'd studied and the connection they had with the German who scientist who discovered bismuth. Okay, then why is the water dirty? Well, that's silver. And after 500 years, silver tarnishes. Okay, so it's sulfur. Another connection, right? Uh, gets on the silver and uh, turns it dark, and so she wasn't allowed to clean it but electronically, she was allowed to go backwards and show that the water would have been shimmering originally when this thing was made. Isn't that neat? Okay. Now that I have your eyes open, we can talk about how you're transducing light in your eyes. You're using the molecule retinal. When it absorbs a photon, it undergoes this isomerization. It changes from what's called cis, this form in this bond, 
to trans. And those of you who had organic chemistry remember this. Now, the synthetic chemistry, remember, we don't work on these floppy biological molecules yet. And so the synthetic chemist equivalent of that is azobenzene. Its more stable form is trans. You can use ultraviolet light to excite it. And when it relaxes back, it can come down on the other side of the barrier to this less stable cis form. You can excite to that same state with visible light, right? It costs less energy to do that, uh, to get it back to trans. Or you can just wait. Or you can heat if you're, if you're impatient. You can heat it up and uh, make it go back to trans. But it turns out if you put this molecule on a surface, then it doesn't isomerize when you shine ultraviolet light on it. And the reason is the excitation gets transferred to the substrate electrons before it can ever switch. And so what we did is we used our isolation trick to keep one molecule from another. And then we used a standoff, an insulator, no multiple bonds in the first experiments anyway, that reduced the conductivity of the molecules. In other words, reduced the coupling of that, the electrons on the azobenzene part of the molecule to the substrate. And we're able to get all the way back up to the efficiency that one finds in solution looking at isolated molecules. And over a few months, we could get statistics And then we could go this with ultraviolet light, going from trans to cis, and then we could go back cis to trans with visible light. Took a long time to get those data. I have a very impatient postdoc in my group, Yubing Zhang, who doesn't like experiments that take months. And so what he did is he used a spectral measurement. So it turns out the vibration, so this short interlude for some of the chemists, we can measure the vibrational spectrum which gives you chemical identity and, in fact, changes in bonding as well. And so we use a particular kind of vibrational spectroscopy called Raman spectroscopy. And we're just looking at a very few molecules, less than a percent of a monolayer on the surface. Right? A monolayer of these molecules is about 10 to the 15 per square centimeter. And if you try to measure those you know, 10 to the 12, 10 to the 11 molecules, however many are on there, you on, on our regular substrates, you wouldn't see anything. Yeah, there's no signal. And so what he did is he went down into the nanofab and he drilled a bunch of holes in our substrates. And he did that with what's called a focused ion beam. And he chose the spacing of the holes to make special electronic enhancement properties of those substrates, what are called plasmons. So similar to uh, what you see in nanoparticle suspensions come from plasmon resonances of those, if you, you know what those are. In any case, uh, once you get the holes in the substrate with the right spacing, you can see a spectrum of just a few molecules and all isolated from each other. And in fact, our microscope still works between the holes. We can go and measure them and show that they're still isolated there. And so then, in a couple of days, so Lasse Jensen did the calculation. We used Yang Yang's uh, Raman spectrometer. And he showed which modes were related to changing from cis to trans. In fact, the conductance of the molecule that's tilted over like this is about a factor of 100 different. And so that also leads to changes in the uh, signals. And we're able, in a couple of days, to get really much better statistics for those isolated molecules. Okay. So here's where things get a little embarrassing. Right? We've been working for maybe a decade on these single molecules doing this less than an nanometer, right? What do you tell your mother? Oh, I'm still looking at one. You know, aren't you, aren't you done with that yet? Can't you do something useful for the world? And, uh, 
I used to be on a crew team, and very much like now, I was the coxswain, the guy who yells from the back and does uh, strategy and tries to get people to work together. And okay, maybe occasionally I leaned over and talked to some of the other boats, trash, but not, not so much. <laughs> and when things work right, right, the boat works together, the oars move together, you lift the boat out, you go your two kilometers is a typical race, and that's sort of where we're trying to go right now in lining molecules up precisely and getting them work, to work together. You can see that we can make precise assemblies that have absolutely no function, and we have... We have examples of that. And more commonly, when you put molecules together and try and get them to work, something really terrible happens, and you get nowhere. <laughs> so let me show you, uh, show you this. So we can isolate individual molecules, I showed you earlier, by processing in the right way. And it's a little uh, complicated just how we do that. But we're able to get lines of molecules, one molecule wide, along those domain boundaries. We can also... Uh, tune our conditions to get a range of widths, one to four molecules. Okay? And then we can also get clusters. Like if we leave those empty spaces, either at step edges or elsewhere on the surface, we get a bunch of molecules inserted uh, all together. We also have a way to get precisely a pair of molecules. And I'll show you that in a minute. Okay. So it uh, turns out uh, these single molecule wide lines, when you shine light on them for a while and then go back and look, you can see that they change together. Uh, wider lines, it turns out, don't do as well. That they, uh, There's some degradation of the surrounding matrix, the groups, the clusters that are still together do switch together. But it's a, a less easy-to-understand system. And this is kind of unsatisfying in any case. It's as if you, know, you lined up a bunch of dominoes, then you left the room, and your little brother or sister dropped a rock on them, and then you came back in, you looked and said, yeah, they all fell over. And the fun part is seeing it happen. So how do we do that? It turns out that instead of using light, we can use electrons. So there's a, an energy threshold much lower if you're able to make a negative ion resonance for these molecules. And then what I can do is I can use my tip. I can come in right to the middle of the line, let's say, be right over one molecule, and I can raise up the electron energy. And that's our spectroscopy is pretty easy in this microscope because all we're doing is dialing in a voltage. You remember the units of energy, electron volts. So our electron gives us the E. The V is really just voltage on a, on a voltage supply. And so while we normally image at about one volt, which doesn't perturb the molecules, if we go up to two volts, the energy of the electrons exceeds that threshold for making the molecules isomerize. And we can see that one line of molecules will isomerize, but an adjacent one won't. So they have to be coupled together, and we are starting to understand why that is in terms of electrons delocalizing along the chain now. Okay. Well, we did a lot of uh, experiments. We tried the lining three identical microscopes up and having you know two grad students and undergrad do the experiments over and over and over, and we could never get the statistics we needed. So enter Yubing. And he took the substrates in which he drilled all the holes, and he worked out the conditions on those to where he could make those lines predominate. Okay? So more than like something like 98% of the molecules on the surface were in one molecule-wide lines when he got done processing the films. And he could go in and check that with looking with a microscope in between the holes. And then he get the kind of statistics we needed in order to see how different the isolated molecules were from the chains. 
There's something else you get out of this, too. Remember, we're, we're uh, sensitive to chemical identity and chemical environment. You see a spectral shift due to the interactions between the molecules, and that's a test of our assignment of that structure, which, luckily, everything was hunky and dory. Okay. And so then he went from the isolated molecules with pretty good statistics to the chains, which switch more slowly. That's some again. Okay. Now, let's talk about Alex Jen, who's coming on Thursday. So we were frustrated for a long time looking at how people optimize molecules for solar cells. Okay, what, there are synthetic chemists who spend a lot of time designing fancy molecules that absorb light efficiently, then measure the spectrum in solution. They design parts of the molecules which would donate electrons, separated from parts of the molecule that would accept electrons, so you get that spacing all within a molecule. This is also done for polymer systems in a, in a similar way, but sort of ma more material side than, uh, uh, than chemistry side. And then the synthetic chemists would do something terrible. They would hand the molecules over to an engineer, and I've, I'm also in material science, so I can part of the School of Engineering, uh, who would take these... Ooh, someone. I guess the engineers didn't like that one. Okay. Uh, <laughs> uh, who would take the molecules and stick them between electrodes, one of which was transparent, and measure the photocurrent of the overall device. And that was dominated by the lousy electrode interface. Okay? And so the uh, output might be, well, that molecule was 20% worse than what you gave us last month. And that was no way to improve the molecules. So our idea was, let's measure the intrinsic properties of the molecules. We'll put them on our substrate. We'll shine light on the substrate. It's going to be tricky, though. Uh, we'll talk about that in a minute. And we'll measure the change in conductance of that molecule knowing its environment. And then we'll optimize the molecular design with experiments. We'll work out the connection of the electrodes that you want to be most efficient. And then we can compare different families of molecules, basically best of breed of each, to see which one's going to work the best. Now, here's the problem. When I put my tip here over this chromophore and shine light on it, light absorbed by the tip makes the tip heat up and expand. And remember that apparent height is a proxy for conductance. That would be bad. And there are lots of papers in literature showing artifacts like that. So we made the rule that we had to excite with light from underneath our sample. And if you make the samples thin enough, a little bit of light bleeds over in what's called evanescent coupling or the evanescent wave. Okay? And we can tune that thickness properly so that the light can be absorbed by the molecule but not get through to heat up the tip. And we have a built-in control because we have molecules around our chromophore, chromophores that don't absorb light, so those shouldn't change in their apparent height. And so we did that. So Mooney Kim was a grad student who came to me from an instrument manufacturer in Korea. Her boss, I knew when he was a grad student at Stanford, he worked with the inventor of the atomic force microscope, and he wrote me a letter. Dear Paul, you should take Mooney Kim in your group. She will make good microscopes for you. And so she designed, as a graduate student, 30 scan-telling microscopes to do these experiments. And the 30th one worked was stable enough to measure for hours at a time over a single molecule, and she's now a postdoc at Stanford where her uh, CEO uh, had worked and at IBM where I used to work on a really complicated experiment there. And I'll point out she married another fellow in the lab, uh, Nate Holman, and there's a, yeah, anyway. It's like a, 
three couples now. And some other like intergenerational things too. Okay, so uh, here, here's what we did. Uh, we wanted to put two molecules down together, and there's a trick to do that. You start with these as a dimer where the sul- there's a sulfur-sulfur bond, like in disulfide coupling in proteins, but the gold surface will break that bond and leave two molecules proximate. Okay? And then uh, we can look at these molecules before we excite them, show that they're there, excite them and see the apparent height change of the pair when we're exciting them, and then they can actually react. And in solution, when you excite them, they react in such a way that that middle ring here reacts with that triple bond there because they can rotate around. But we're holding these molecules in place, and they can't rotate around, and so they go through another reaction. Instead, the middle rings cyclize like this, and this is not seen in solution, not because it's forbidden, it's just unfavorable. And so because of that, it's sort of a crude mimic of an enzyme, and we can rip off Picasso and uh, you know, make this graphic. And it was sort of a weird coincidence. I just asked an artist to draw this graphic for us, and then we had to go out that evening uh, to the chancellor's residence at UCLA, and right above the stairs, Picasso visited uh, UCLA in like 1961, and he gave UCLA this drawing of the flower bouquet, and he wrote to UCLA, Pablo Picasso, and it's right over the stairs there. Just about fell over. Anyway, uh, that was kind of neat. And so Alex Jen made these molecules. These turn out to be the basis of many of those donor acceptor dyads and triads that are going to be used in solar cells, but they're stripped of the donor and acceptor. Okay? Let's go on. So Moonhee right? Uh, she's coupling uh, through like this. You can put things like fullerenes or porphyrins on here, depending upon which group you're in. Jen likes to use these topologically symmetric molecules. And you'd say, well, how can one be a donor and one an acceptor? And it turns out that once you get on the surface, both in theory and experiment, these tilt over, and one becomes an obvious donor and obvious acceptor. And we can measure the changes when we excite them, show that nothing happens to the surroundings, and put in dummy molecules Nothing happens. Okay. Uh, we've worked on uh, more complicated solar cells with Yang Yang. Uh, this one got a little bit of attention earlier in the year where uh, we were able to make transparent windows that we could print. And so by using a polymer that absorbs infrared but lets visible light through, we have a way to collect energy through something transparent. So, you know, we have a lot of rooftop space around here. It's okay to put solar panels that are uh, opaque on top of those rooftops, but in cities like, I was in Taipei last week, and Hong Kong, and uh, other places, there's a lot of window space and not a lot of rooftop space. And so you could hope to collect uh, solar energy in this way. And they're about as transparent as a dirty window. They transmit about 70% of the light. And first, first pass, we get 4%, but we can certainly do better than that. And so now the hard part comes where we'll pick apart the pieces of these polymers figure out how to get them together in order to move forward and have more efficient uh, solar cells. Okay. One of the things you probably heard about nanotechnology is it's going to revolutionize medicine. And the thinking is, you, know, you take a nanoparticle, you put some functionality on it that targets a tumor, and the particle gets stuck there, and then you have a drug molecule or something that can turn into a drug molecule under the right circumstances, or maybe even a little box that opens up and releases the drug on contact, and then there's some reporting diagnostic uh, that tells you it's there and it's doing its business. And it doesn't work. 
I mean, it doesn't work that way yet anyway, and we're a long way. So we're sort of lucky that tumors have leaky blood vessels. And so the way things work is that uh, nanoparticles get stuck in tumors if you make them the right size, and then they sort of sit there. And so if you have something that can be released, it's released. If you have something that absorbs light, you can shine light, you know, if the tumor is accessible, and you can burn the cells in the tumor. That's kind of where we are. Uh, and there's another thing that happens with nanoparticles. Another way to define nanomaterials is things that get cleared by the kidneys, liver, and spleen. So if you're going after those organs, you can do pretty well with nanoparticles so far. What we would like to do is really understand what the limits of, of patterning on the nanoparticles are. It's going to be important where we put the different functionality. And so we use Eubing's strategy again to put these pairs of molecules on to look at the relative orientations of these probe molecules by studying which reaction they undergo. Can they rotate around? The answer is no. Or how fast do they react and what are the relative angles when they're sitting on this curved or faceted surface versus a flat surface? The paper just came out uh, online. We're, we're pretty excited now to develop these probes to give us a new way to look at the nanoparticle surfaces. Okay, am I on time? Okay, let's... Uh, uh, clear out fairly quickly. So the, the other crisis in my life was I married a neuroscientist. And other than the solar cell stuff work, with, you know, solar cell work that's uh, relatively recent, she posed the question, you know, you're so good at all this patterning, why are you doing all this useless stuff? You know, we're trying to look at ultimate limits of miniaturization, but those molecules I showed you will never be replacing silicon. We have no idea how to wire them up, making even a few molecules do this together. Nothing yet. And so we, you know, crushed. I said, well, what do you think we ought to do? And she said, well, if you can pattern so well, why don't you put one neurotransmitter every five nanometers across the surface so I can capture the proteins from the brain involved in neurotransmission and understand protein expression, start to assign the function of the many proteins that, that are either unknown or known but have unknown function from the brain that interact with one of the approximately 100 neurotransmitters and uh, ultimately turn things around and go into the brain and try and map the chemistry dynamically at the synapse scale. So we said, okay. <laughs> there's no lithography that's going to allow you to place... Oops, what did I just do there? Yeah, there's no... Well, I should know what that button is. <laughs> there's... Don't even know what I had. So uh, there's no lithography, that, remember, that'll allow you to get down to those small scales, but we can use these statistical uh, methods to place... Uh, molecules in the domain boundaries once we properly prepare the matrix. And so we did that, and we said, there you go. And she said, oh, no, no, that's not what I meant. I meant I want serotonin in this patch, and I want dopamine in that patch, and I want norepinephrine in this patch, and histamine here, and so forth. And all the neurotransmitters across the surface multiplexed in such a way that you do the separation, measure the binding constant, everything else. And uh, she actually came up with a solution, which was to use this stamping technique to first prepare the matrix as we did before, but then insert molecules in patterns across the surface, do this hierarchical placement, put in a tether to which we can attach the neurotransmitter molecules. It turns out you want to do that rather than work out the conditions to insert each one because everyone's different. So you come up with a universal tether, and then you attach to that a neurotransmitter. But there are two problems which should be familiar here, both to do with real estate. And we're going to skip these for now. That was the ripping the... Oh, I have to show this one thing, sorry. 
So we had a fight in our group. Uh, yeah. Where it uh, turns out if you want to do that insertion, you have to match the surface energy of the stamp to the surface energy of the of the exposed functionality. And we had some students who didn't believe these data, and so they came up with an experiment to test it. And what they did is they they made the stamp reactive. What they're really trying to do was change the surface energy. By making it reactive, if you had the right exposed functionality, hydroxyl or amine on the surface, the molecules would stick to the stamp, and it was just that same experiment I told you about, where if you rip the molecules off mechanically, then you get to look. And so they were able to show all these different patterns. They actually took every stamp we had, and they made it into a pattern. They, I got back from some trip in a group meeting. Here's this beautiful collage where I could say, oh, yeah, I remember the 1998 you know, stamp for the microfluidics or something. And so uh, then they showed me they'd done all this stuff. I said, wait a second, you've got to look at the stamp and see if the gold atoms are there. And indeed, there's a layer of gold atoms. Uh, when they measure, and they can do a careful measurement of where they patterned and showed that not only did they remove the molecules, but they removed a layer of gold atoms, too. So it's exciting for me, anyway. And so here's the, here's the real estate problem. If you make a surface that captures DNA or a surface that has proteins on it, those molecules space themselves out because the binding partner is about the same size as the molecule you're, uh, you're uh, trying to capture. In our case, though, you have these little molecules trying to capture big proteins, and that's the reason she wanted 5 nanometer spacing. Okay? And there's another real estate problem, and that is, look at this molecule serotonin, right? Responsible for anxiety and mood and so forth. If you do the simplest chemistry attached to the amine, none of the proteins that recognize serotonin in the brain recognize that surface. And if you back up to the biological precursor, 5-hydroxytryptophan, react through this carboxylic acid and leave the amine in place, they all do. And so now we're able to do things like measure binding constants, uh, sort proteins, and so forth. And as part of a bigger project, as I mentioned, ultimately to get into the brain and measure at the synapse scale. So to do chemical measurements in the brain now, in most people's hands, it's minutes and 100 micron scale, if you're into that kind of thing. Uh, in Anne's group, and one she works with in Pittsburgh, a little less than a minute chemically specific and still about 100 microns. One exception is dopamine that's electrochemically active. So you can do that in real time, which for the brain means a millisecond, and about 5 micron scale. So still about a factor of 1,000 too big. And in the case of general, you know, all the other neurotransmitters, uh, also many orders of magnitude too slow. And so we're trying to uh, develop molecules that will be sensitive in the brain, multiplex those on sensors that go in and let us do this mapping. And you're going to see over the next few years three big mapping projects. One just looking at connections. There's a group at Harvard and another one in Lausanne that are getting a fair bit of attention and enormous amounts of money. Uh, Another one that's going to look at voltage maps of the brain, basically pretending the brain's a computer and saying, can you look at that dynamically? And I think the more complicated and hopefully more interesting one are looking at these hundred not-quite-orthogonal chemical channels. And so, uh, yeah, let's talk a last couple of minutes. So I, I gave a talk at the Directors Guild in Hollywood, and so I had to, you know, make the connection about why we care about differentiation, right? So if you take a composite image of a person, right, you lose all the interesting features. It's from the Oscars. Uh, 
right? You don't get to see uh, lots of detail that, that makes us all uh, different, interesting, and so forth. Same thing in uh, biomolecules. So back when uh, Rosalind Franklin recorded the structure of DNA with uh, X-ray uh, diffraction and Watson and Crick sorted it out with her data, uh, they didn't get the sequence. They just got the overall structure. That was an average. Averaging's bad, crystallography, NMR, right? If you're trying to look at uh, heterogeneous systems. So advance several decades to the point where we can do sequencing. And remember, we thought that sequencing was going to let us decode life. Right? Didn't turn out that way. Right? We have about 25,000 genes. In each of us, we have about a million different proteins, both from the mix and match of the genes, as well as from about 100 different post-translational modifications. And so the question is, how is that done and why and so forth? There's a lot more to do, and I love this library picture showing. You better just go, keep going deeper and deeper and deeper. Not that it was useless, right? If we're trying to create jobs, it's election coming up in four weeks, right? There were, there were 300,000 jobs, uh, according to the Wall Street Journal, which, you know, where they lean. Uh, it's, I think there's a Zakaria article. And, uh, and uh, plenty of money and economic activity generated by the Genome Project. It just didn't revolutionize medicine yet, as we know it, nor did it uh, uh, decode life. That's okay. There's more to do. So these single structures and looking at their variations, we know that's going to be important. We just don't know how to do it yet. And so in our institute, we're trying three different methods. One is with electron microscopy and tomography. And that's tough because the electrons damage the system you're studying. So one of the things we're trying to do is figure out, remember when I, sa- I did this close-up measurement, we want to figure out where the information is and where we're missing it. So choose the conditions to fill in the pieces and so that we can do a reconstruction on a single visit virus rather than averaging many thousands of them, which is what's done now. And in my group, we're doing that on peptides, where we've worked out a system. Remember, I told you we could measure the tops of molecules, but with the microwaves, we're sensitive to multiple bonds, heteroatoms, the bottoms, and the connections. And so if we can figure out how to decode that information, we're already underway in that we can identify different amino acids and we can determine some of the side group residue orientation. But these particular ones turn out to be amyloid-forming peptides. So they're synthetic short structures that mimic the amyloids that we have with a number of neurodegenerative diseases, and probably also now diabetes has an amyloid associated with it, and probably some positive uh, aspects as well. So David Eisenberg uh, at UCLA is the king of this. He's a crystallographer one of the most famous in the world in uh, proteins, we're even uh, converting him over to being a single molecule guy. Okay. And so we'll see how far we can go with this with combinations of modeling and measurement, new tools, and really using the mathematics uh, that, that underlies uh, imaging, what's called uh, compressive sensing, uh, working with uh, Stan Osher and Andrew Bertozzi, leaders in that field, to try and pull out the data, figure out where the information is. And that's the math we're going to skip. Okay. Uh, there are also ways to put different microscopies together, we think, but it's hard to understand how to put the data together and to figure out what information's in what modality. And I think you're going to see much more of that uh, coming shortly as well. Uh, we have the advantage that we have state-of-the-art in optical microscopy, electromicroscopy, scanning probe microscopy, math all in line. And so we work together and play in that area. Okay.
uh, let's skip this one for now. This is what I want my microscope to look like. Right? It should measure everything all the time with a very wide dynamic range. You should be able to choose whether you're measuring the left vase or the upper right plate to do any particular measurement. And it would sort of match my desk. Anyway, I don't have that sculpture. <laughs> yeah. So uh, what happened? Right? We got the eyes to see at these very small scales. And with that, we're able to overthrow the thinking of you know, what we started to draw as a field in cartoons. And from that, let, that led us to new structural measurements and new strategies for the placement of molecules, further questions as to uh, you know, what were the precise structures, the ability to place single molecules, pairs, lines, clusters, to more functional questions, to this hierarchical patterning where we could put different neurotransmitters, for instance, in different parts of a surface into microfluidic devices to do separations of complex biological mixtures to capture proteins from the brain. And hopefully, what you'll see over the next few years is uh, this interesting biology of heterogeneity and starting to make the structure, conformation, chemical transformation, associations with function that we know are there, we don't yet know how to measure. Okay, so... Uh, I tried to put everyone's name on every slide. That's the front of CNSI. Uh, we have collaborators around the world, many of them uh, who do synthesis, others in theory. Uh, here are the people who paid for everything in our lab, and we thank them. And I thought I'd leave you with a, a couple of quotes that I like. So I had uh, George Whitesides, the, the guy who started doing this rubber stamping and really one of the leaders in the world in self-assembly. There's a pretty decent chance he'll get the Nobel Prize tomorrow, which we'd be happy about. And uh, so he has this uh, thinking about how you choose problems. And he changes fields every few years. And his idea is choose something really important whether you can do it or not. And if it works, great, everybody's happy. If it doesn't work, at least people credit you with having chosen that important problem. If you choose something unimportant and doesn't work, you're totally dead. And if you choose something unimportant and it works, nobody cares. So put a lot of thought in, in advance. I have my, even my freshman students go in the literature after the first class. And one of the things I warn them is choose an article that matters to you. Don't waste your time on something that you don't care about. And I'd say as you, you know, go off into the world, choose the problems that you really care about. It'll be much easier to get up in the morning and, uh, and go to work. Things like grad school even. You know, uh, a lot of people just choose the most famous person they can find to work with, and that's a really bad idea. Uh, you want to choose something you're the most excited about. Because five years, right, is a big chunk of your life. Don't do something just because you think it's good for you. Other than, you know, required classes. <laughs> Even those. Okay, then I worked with this guy, Lee Hood, who uh, basically enabled the biotechnology revolution by inventing the automated DNA sequencer, automated DNA synthesizer, automated protein sequencer, automated protein synthesizer. He put a huge investment into technology. And he had this really weird way of talking that I spent a year with him. I almost moved up to University of Washington, where he was then on the faculty. He actually left, got his own private institute with some hundreds of millions of dollars of uh, donor money. And when you spoke to him, he didn't differentiate between the future and the present and past. If he knew something was possible and that you knew it was going to come, it was already done. And so, you know, we'd be talking. First six months I was with him, I would say, well, I haven't seen that paper. He said, oh, it hasn't been done yet, but it will. 
know, and then he would be thinking at the next steps beyond that. So just assume everything that can be done has already been done, figure out what you do next. And that is a very useful way to think because it gets you several steps ahead. And oftentimes for him, and oftentimes for us as an institute, we have to say, well, no one's moving fast enough to develop this tool or method, so we're going to do it. Part of the way we, use, we uh, do reconnaissance, with it. we have about 2,000 people who come and use the facilities of the Institute. People come in and say, I need to be able to do this. And you say, nobody knows how. And so you hear that enough, and you think, oh, well, that addresses a number of important problems. We put in the resources to, to develop those tools, and in that way, our members, partners, and users get first access to those and you know, get to ask the scientific questions first, medical questions, engineering, whatever it's art questions, uh, in order to uh, get out ahead. And that, that keeps moving us further steps. And these things, like many, uh, accelerate once you get going that way. And so it's a mindset that's very, very valuable. And I encourage you to, to uh, take it. And we did an interview in the, one of the early issues of the journal with him. I think these are all open access now. Yeah. Okay, and this is what I tried to cover. And thank you again for having me. And uh, yeah. of course, happy to take questions. And uh, let me know when to turn the sound off. We can tell the story about the till. <laughs> yes. Um, when you were talking about like the cancer treatment therapies, and yes. That, and, like I'm familiar with like uh, the concept of like using infrared or like light with like a you know silica based you know mm-hmm. particle covered in gold and all of that. Uh, what's like the difference or benefits in that approach compared to like the drug approach? Because I noticed they're kind of Okay, so the question is, uh, <laughs> get the thumbs up from the back for repeating for the Armed Forces Overseas Network, whatever it's called. Uh, the question is, there are drug-loaded nanoparticles uh, that we discussed, and then there are other ways of uh, addressing tumors thermally. What you do is you uh, take a particle that's either targeted or gets stuck in place, either one will work. Uh, one a famous example is uh, glass, silica particles, glass covered with gold, have those plasmon resonances in the near-infrared, which is penetrating through tissue. And so our friend Naomi Hallis at Rice, who uh, just missed her, but saw her husband on my way out uh, a week ago uh, last Friday. Uh, he works on the theory behind those, actually. Uh, so the advantage there is you don't need any special chemicals other than what you might do in terms of targeting. The disadvantage is uh, things have to be accessible. So either you go in with an infrared laser, which Naomi and I believe a company now she's uh, put together has uh, been working on, or they're close enough to the surface to allow sufficient penetration of the near-infrared to do the damage. But both those are tremendously promising. And so you know, there's no reason to choose one over the other. The hope is that one system or the other will uh, will end up being useful in 
you know, in, in different cases. Uh, there are other people who do not only the gold-covered silica, but shaped uh, gold particles uh, that are reasonably well tolerated by the body, it turns out. And so you can use those as well to get uh, heat into a tumor. You're basically just burning from the inside uh, wherever these particles get stuck or targeted and attached. You know, it's a great question, but both, both make sense. Probably the nearer term are the thermal ones just because they're, they're simpler in many ways. Near infrared is pretty penetrating, yeah, but you don't want other things in the way, like a bone or, yeah. <laughs> uh-huh. Other questions? Yes? Um, there was a somewhat unfortunate report that came out in 2006 by the National Academy Press, which basically said that although they're able to be calculated in theory, um, a lot of manufacturing systems have a particular with confidence. I was wondering what you and your team Okay, so the uh, the comment was that there was a study saying bottom-up uh, manufacturing is n- not well uh, worked out yet. And there are a couple of different ways of uh, looking at these things. So uh, biology is a brilliant example of uh, self-assembly, right? Our, Uh, cell membranes and so forth form, DNA codes information. We have machines, ribosome, that'll do the uh, translation and we're able to make proteins and so forth. Uh, There was a discussion, I don't know how many have heard of uh, Drexler, read the... Okay, so a lot of his ideas don't make chemical sense. But if you look at those structures and the assembler of, you know, placing atoms to make a particular molecule or solid or something else those wouldn't be stable as you're putting them together. And I know, Eric, uh, they, you know, the uh, moving atoms around was taken as, well, see, we're, we're on our way. But those were xenon atoms first. And then, you know, iron and some other things. But one doesn't make solids that way. They'll follow chemical rules and redistribute as you're putting them together. I would say the greater advantage you have is in using synthetic chemistry at the smallest scales, designed interactions to have pieces snapped together, much like in biology, like I've shown you in the monolayers, but we believe now it's possible to go off into three dimensions. And then at the bigger scales, use what we know. So I have a slide really early. Let's, uh, I can do it this way. I think I have a trick. I think I'll do this. Thought I did? Oh, I see. It's just thinking. That spinning wheel is annoying. Okay. Uh, one more time. So one of the things you might think is, instead of you know building a fab to go down to 10 nanometers that cost 100 billion dollars, back off and use some of the fabs you can pick up on the market cheap, and do things at very high contrast with not state-of-the-art methodologies for fabrication. And then at the smaller scales, use this chemical patterning, use the interactions, form the structures you want from 100 nanometers on down in that way. And so go simultaneously, and that's been our strategy, is hybrid lithographies. I think it's in a... uh, That review talks about hybrid lithographies in which you combine the smallest scales in ways that we know through first chemistry and then self-assembly and directed assembly 
and at the bigger scales, either conventional lithographies or these things like the rubber stamps, or you can put these same molecules on the tip of an AFM and draw with them like a pen. Uh, so I think there are ways to get where you want, but you, uh, the assembler, number one, very slow, number two, doesn't make chemical sense. I was just remind. I'll tell you one funny story. So I, I went to one of these early meetings of the institute that uh, was founded, Foresight. and White uh, Foresight exactly. Yeah. So I didn't really know what it was. Maybe it was the third or fourth. Whitesides was giving a talk there too. Rick Smalley, the discover the fullerenes, was there. So Whitesides gave a you know one of his early beautiful talks on self assembly, and the audience was quite mixed. And maybe I should have the mic off for this, but that's okay. So uh, there were people who were interested in the science. And then there was a group of people for whom Star Trek was just a little too fictional. And so one of the questions after his talk was this guy goes, well, if you took the carbon from just one asteroid, you could make a a spaceship with diamond walls two meters thick that would hold 100 billion people. And it's the only time I've ever seen Whiteside speechless. So. (laughs) So, yeah, probably not a way to make a spaceship uh, or much else, but it was it it motivated a lot of people to think. Smalley and Drexler had this famous argument that was published in uh, Chemical and Engineering News that might be interesting to read. But I think the Drexler work doesn't make chemical sense. And there are examples as if once you get rid of Cartesian coordinates x y z requiring every atom to be somewhere, and you think more flexibly like biological systems, then we know everything works. And so why not go that route? And you're referring to Smalley's, like, fat fingers? There was, that's part of it, right, in their further discussions. There's more, uh, there's more uh, chemistry that, sorry. So uh, there was this uh, public argument between uh, Smalley and Drexler that's an interesting read. We have some of our classes uh, go through it still. But basically, uh, my view is the, the Drexler approach does not make sense in forming structures that would be stable en route to doing anything. Uh, and, you know, not so much as hampered along those lines since. So basically, in your opinion, Drexler's like vision and engines of creation and systems is like a very fantastical approach that's still very uh, not I would say he thought about it the wrong way. So oh, the question is, is engines of creation like very far off or impossible? And I would say uh, Drexler missed the mark. That if you think about biological systems, they do everything he was trying to do. And so why not take that same approach and not insist upon rigidity and a grid that doesn't make any chemical, doesn't make any chemical sense in what you ultimately put together, but think about systems that come together, are dynamic, and in that way, we have error correction in our bodies, we have ways to eliminate cells that are problematic, Uh, we can repair DNA, we can label something if it's functioning incorrectly and, you know, eat it. Uh, All those things are, they're terrific examples. Uh, We can think about following those things and get everything, everything we want in terms of structural control, at least. Questions, I'll invite you to come up individually because I know people are having a good oh, right, time. Right, right, another class, of course, yeah. Yeah, yeah, thank you all.